Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I want to talk to you today about our greatest responsibility. Do you guys ever look at responsibility as obligation, something you have to do? I mean, sometimes responsibility is that, right? Sometimes we are responsible for things, we're obligated to do things, and we do them because it's our responsibility, right? Do you ever look at your responsibility and even your obligations as a privilege? It's real easy for us sometimes under the weight of responsibility, under the weight of obligation, to lose sight of the privilege that we have to carry out responsibility and to fulfill obligations. And so, when I talk about our greatest responsibility, there's a, there's a couple of ways we can think about this. We can think of it as something we have to do, we're obligated to do, that we don't necessarily want to do, but it's got to be done. Kind of like mowing the yard, taking out the trash cleaning the house, vacuuming out your car. Now those of you who know me really well laugh when I talk about vacuuming out my car because I do that maybe once a year. Maybe. Did you hear that? Not even. Not even. But I have been driving around lately thinking, I need to go vacuum out my car. We have these little granite, little pieces of crushed granite or rock at our house. They get in your treads of your shoes. Then when I get in my car, I, I've got a bucket of little pieces of gravel all in my car along with leaves from the tree because I park under the crepe myrtle and so the crepe myrtle likes to get inside my car. And I can look at vacuuming my car as an obligation, a responsibility, or I could look at it as a privilege. I'm privileged to be able to drive around in a clean car, or I could tolerate a dirty car. And there's lots of ways to look at things. And there's some responsibilities that are you know, not as important. Vacuuming your car is not nearly as important as a lot of things. Not nearly as important. Not even in the same category in terms of the things that I want to talk to you about today. And one of the reasons I'm talking to you about this today is because of the season that we are in as a people and a nation. So let's read 
Revelation chapter 2. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. Now, Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the proper title of this book. And we're not going to get into all the things that people like to get into. I find it so interesting that people who aren't even Christians like to talk about Revelation. They like to read about it, talk about it. Because they're so focused on the end of the world. Because we're all interested in the end of the world, right? Even people who don't believe in God. It's like, if the world's going to end, I want to know about it. I want to know how it's going to end. I want to know, you know, is it climate change? Is it going to burn up because all the ice is going to melt and then we're going to drown and then we're going to burn up? Or what's going to happen here? Or we read the revelation of Jesus Christ and we read about all these images and we get caught up in that. But I want to pull us back. And I want you to understand what this book of the Bible is about. It's about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. That's the title. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of the end of the world. It's not the revelation of horrible things that are going to happen on earth one day. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to skip the first chapter because we're not really doing a study on the book of Revelation. We're going to look specifically at the letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches. And today, we're going to look at, in particular, two letters. The first two letters. And they're recorded for us in the first 11 chapters of Revelation chapter 2. Now, if you went to a garage sale, I saw this online a few months ago about some guy who went to a junk shop in California and was digging through old photos, and he, he bought for like $2 a couple of photos, and one of them happened to be an original photo of Jesse James. And the headline was the most expensive photo the most valuable photo on earth. And the photo, they estimate, is worth like $6 million. And he was in some junk shop in California, I think Sacramento, and he buys this photograph, and obviously the guy in the junk shop didn't know what he had there, and the guy who bought it didn't necessarily know what he had there, but he soon discovered. What he bought for a buck was worth $6 million bucks. What if someone said to you, I've got a letter in fact, I've got seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church. It's an original. I'll sell it to you for a dollar. Oh, we'd get all excited, wouldn't we? But here we have the Word of God that's been passed down to us, that's been given to us. Now, it's not the original, written on original parchment in the original language. But we've got a copy of an authentic letter that Jesus wrote to his church. Now, he didn't write it to Christ Fellowship Church. He wrote it to the church in Ephesus. 
a city in modern-day Turkey that doesn't exist anymore under that name. He wrote it to a church in a city called Smyrna in what we know as modern-day Turkey, and Smyrna doesn't exist under that name any longer. What was once Ephesus and what was once Smyrna are just villages and you would never know, especially Ephesus, that it was a world trade center, a huge city with a huge population, great importance. There was a church there founded by the Apostle Paul taken over and looked over by the Apostle John until his death. Jesus had these letters pinned for these specific churches, but I want you to understand that Jesus had these letters pinned for us. He had them pinned to these churches. He had John record the letters to give to those churches, but he had John record those letters for his church throughout all eternity. He pinned a letter to a church in Ephesus so that a church in Taylor, Texas could one day read the letter and be challenged by it. So Ephesians, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, let's read together. To the angel of the church at, of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have test, tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have per persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Verse 8. Now we're writing to another church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, 
and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, bring light, reveal truth, And let that truth change and transform us. May it set us free. Lord, not only from fear, but from misunderstanding and incorrect thinking. That Lord, in your truth, we would become what you have created us to be. Salt and light in this earth. To bear witness to your glory. to all who are near and even to those who are far. Father, we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want you to notice the contrast in these two letters. There's a pattern here. There's actually seven letters written to seven churches. When it says the angel, the word angel means messenger. To the messenger of the church of Ephesus. More than likely, Jesus is addressing the pastors, the shepherds of these churches. Men who had responsibility and oversight of these congregations and these works in these cities. Now I want you to notice that Jesus begins his letter to the church at Ephesus and he says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now to understand what all that means you really have to read the chapter preceding that. And it's not really a mystery. Jesus tells us here, uh, it, it was revealed to John, and John writes it in verse 20 of chapter 1, just the verse preceding this, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. He said the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the churches, and the seven lampstands that you saw are the seven churches. So there's... There's the definition. Jesus says, I am the one who holds the messengers in my hand, and I hold the very church in my hand. I walk in the midst of them. He created them, He put them in place. He walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus walks in the midst of his church. We come into buildings like this and we we judge the presence of Jesus by temporal things. We very often judge the presence of Jesus in the building by the music or by the atmosphere or by the people 
and music and atmosphere and people can communicate a lot of things, but the presence of Jesus is not dependent upon music and atmosphere and people. Jesus dwells among his people. Whether his people are gathered in this building or whether they are gathered under a tree or whether they are gathered around a table, Jesus said, where two or more are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. In fact, Paul says that you are a jar of clay and you contain the very presence of God. And so if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, Jesus walked into the building when you did. But his presence is here. Not just because you're here, but because the promise is that he dwells among his people. He reminds the church at Ephesus, I am walking among not just you, but all of the churches. And he says in verse 2, I know your works, I know your labor. I know your patience. I know that you can't bear, you can't tolerate those who are evil. I know you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. I know you have found them to be liars. I know you have persevered and have patience. I know you have labored for my name's sake. And I know that you have not become weary. That's a pretty good resume. I know your works, your labor, your patience, your lack of tolerance for evil, your commitment to truth, your perseverance, your patience, and your labor for Christ's namesake. I know you have not become weary in those things. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Ouch. Remember, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Do you see this church? Look what Jesus says. I know your works, your labor, your patience, your intolerance for evil, your commitment to truth, your perseverance, your patience, how you have labored for my name's sake and how you have not become weary in doing those things. Nevertheless, you have fallen. And how did they fall? Because you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Then he goes on and he encourages them again. We have commendation, rebuke, and now he's 
commending them again. Verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Repent and do the first works. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. You left your first love. Remember up there, he says, I know that you do not tolerate, you do not bear with those who are evil. No one knows for sure who the Nicolaitans were, but there's a good chance that they were a sect of people that had kind of gone the opposite direction of, of the law and Judaism, where the law had this legalistic system where people were bound by all of this structured law and legalism, and it was righteousness by keeping the deeds of the law. The Nicolaitans very likely were a group of people that went the other direction, who heard the message of the gospel and the message of God's grace and said, hey, we're forgiven. Let's go sin and magnify God's grace and live any way we want. Anything goes now. Jesus says, you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Why might Jesus hate that system of belief? Because it, it degrades and diminishes and tarnishes the reality of what His grace does. His grace doesn't give us license to go live any way we want. His grace frees us from sin and enables us and gives to us the privilege to walk in righteousness as He is righteous, to be holy as He is holy, not by our own strength, because we can't in our own strength, but as we desire that, as we seek to live in a manner that honors and glorifies God, when we do fail and we do fail, when we do fall short, and we do fall short, we know that God's grace is there. And it's not our righteousness, it's the righteousness that was imputed to us by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm not happy about my failure, but I'm very thankful for God's grace because I am a failure. I will freely confess that to you. And my failure magnifies God's grace, not because I try to fail, but because in spite of my efforts, my, even my best efforts to not fail, I still fail. So I find myself living very grateful, very thankful for God's grace. And that grace doesn't motivate me to run away from holiness. That grace motivates me to gravitate toward holiness. It gives me 
a desire to be holy because God is holy. It gives me a desire to be righteous because God is righteous and he has given me his righteousness. And in giving me his righteousness, he's given me a responsibility that really is a privilege. Now, there's so much. We could spend all of our time talking about this church, but I don't have time for that. I want to draw your attention to this. Nevertheless, you've left your first love. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Jesus was asked a question. What is the greatest commandment, teacher? He said, this is the greatest commandment, that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and all the prophets. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all. Paul writes in Galatians 5 verse 6 that it is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but it is faith working by love. We come to the church at Smyrna. I'm rushing here because I want to get to my main point. I want you to notice something about Smyrna. The church at Smyrna in verses 11 through in verses 8 through 11, there is no rebuke for this church. There is only condemnation. But there was also the promise of something to come. Persecution. Look at this, verse 8. To the angel of the church at Smyrna, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, here's a promise Jesus is giving to this church. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Why is the devil about to throw some of them into prison? The answer is there, that you may be tested, that you may be proved, and you will, not you might, you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, it doesn't take a real intelligent person to read that letter from Jesus and kind of read between the lines. That Jesus may be indicating that some of you are going to get thrown into prison, and some of you are going to die in prison. How would you like to receive that letter from Jesus? Hey, I just got an express mail from Jesus. Let's open it up and see what he has to say to us. Oh, look, he's really pleased with us. Oh, and by the way, persecution's coming. The devil's going to throw some of you into prison, but be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. What, is, what do you think that means, guys? Do, do you think that means that some of us are going to die? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. Why would Jesus, why would Jesus send a letter telling us that some of us are going to die? Why would Jesus commend us for our, our good works and our faithfulness by telling us that persecution is coming? 
that he's going to throw some of us into prison that we might be proved, tested. But be faithful. Don't fear. Be faithful unto death. How many of you honestly, honestly, raise your hand if you really want to get a letter like that from Jesus? Well, guess what? We got one. This is our letter. We don't want that letter. Do you know how many people have lived and died in America and they never experienced persecution? A lot. We've been a blessed nation. Do you know how many believers on earth are born and live and experience intense persecution and die under persecution? Millions. Millions, millions, millions have throughout the ages. It's happening right now. Now, why am I talking to you about this today? I'm not being prophetic. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I even believe that kind of persecution is coming to America. But I think we would be naive and ignorant and not very responsible, especially as pastors, if we did not open our eyes and see the things that are happening around us as a nation and discern the times that we're living in and address those to the church properly. To close our eyes and bury our heads in the sand and pretend like everything is okay, we just need to have some other kind of faith besides Job's faith. Remember the pastor in Colorado who talked about Job's pansy faith. He didn't want a church full of pansy believers who had faith like Job. And I look at guys like that and I say, that's the problem in America. Because we're helping people. We don't really need a lot of help to live in denial. You guys ever notice that? Human beings don't need a lot of help to live in denial. Living in denial comes very natural for fallen creatures like us. But when we're born again, when we've been made new creations, we're to renew our minds to the truth, and we need to be people that don't live in denial anymore. We need to be people that can open our eyes and see with seeing eyes, hear with hearing ears, discern the seasons and the times around us, and live and act and do recording accordingly. We need to do what Jesus told the church at Ephesus to do. Remember, then we need to repent, we need to change our thinking, and then we need to change our actions. Christ was not writing to nations, he was writing to churches. I'm not talking to you about a nation per se today. I'm talking to you as the church. And here's why that distinction is, impo- is, 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 is important. These letters recorded for us in the book of Revelation were written to churches. They weren't written to nations. The church spends a lot of time talking about the nation, 
The church in America today, there's a lot of talk about the nation we call America. We're fixing to have an election in just a matter of days. Some people would say it's the most important election we probably ever have. I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't really matter to me whether that is true or not. They should all be important because we should recognize we've been given the privilege to choose our leaders. Do you know that the churches who lived in the nations when when Jesus dictated this letter to the Apostle John, they lived under the Roman Empire. They didn't get to go and vote for the emperor. The church is called in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 a holy nation. So we have the church which is a holy nation residing among the nations on earth. You are not, I am not, but we are. The church is not an individual. The church is an assembly of individuals. The word church means the assembly of called out ones. It's not a religious term, it's a political term, believe it or not. But Jesus used it in a religious or spiritual context when he said, I will build my church. I will build my assembly of called out ones. That's who we are. I am not that. We are that. So the church, the assembly of God's called out ones, resides in every nation on the face of this planet. And it is one holy nation. So the church among the nations should strive to affect the peace of those nations and those cities in which it resides. That's why it's important for us to be involved, I believe, in our communities. That's why it's important for us, I believe, to exercise our right to vote or to write a letter to the editor, to pray for your leaders, as the Bible commands us. Those are all responsibilities we have, but they're more than responsibilities. They're privileges that God has given to us as his people, as his holy nation, as his church on earth. Not every place can people vote for their leaders, but in every place can people pray for their leaders. The church should do this the same way Israel was commanded to pray and to work for the peace of Babylon during her captivity, Jeremiah 29, 7. God dictates a letter there to the prophet Jeremiah given to the the exiles in Babylon. And he said, pray for, work for the peace of the cities that you reside in. God was not expecting the Babylonians to understand this principle, but he did command his people to not only understand this, but to live it and to work it. 
So it is today in America. America is not special because it's America. America has become as great and as powerful as it has because of God's purposes in the earth among all nations. As great as America's purpose may be, it can and it will fall like other nations as its people turn away from God to idolatry and ungodly wickedness. If you don't believe that, just keep watching because you're seeing it happen before our very eyes. As the church in America goes, so goes America. Christian or non-Christian, we're blaming R's and D's and I's and this party and that party and her and him and the media. It's none of that. Ultimately, those are symptoms of the root problem. The root problem is God's people in this nation stopped being salt and light. That's the root problem. We compromised to get along. We compromised because our popularity was more important than truth. We began to tolerate evil because we liked the affirmation we got from the world. What we see now is a glaring issue and a glaring problem. I want you to understand it began very subtly. And it didn't begin out there in the world. It began within the confines of the church. The church is the assembly of God's called out people. God's people are called to be salt and light among the nations. And as the salt loses its saltiness and the light is hidden, the nation spirals into wickedness. The salt loses its saltiness. The light is hidden because God's people have left their first love. Now there's a lot of work going on in America right now. The church is scrambling, trying to get the right person elected. Writing letters to congressmen. Putting out all kinds of things on social media. Making pleas for money. So their lobby group and their political action committee can be there in Washington to say the right things to the right people. And all we've become is a group of people. We've become a nation that's begun to trust in the arm of the flesh. We're like the church at Ephesus who's doing all this work. It looks really good. It's really slick. It sounds really good. But in reality, we've, we've fallen We've left our first love. And we've become so focused on politics and political systems and Washington and Austin and, and who's going to get in the White House and who's going to do this that, that we've, we've forgotten what really matters. And we think if we can just get all those things fixed up, then it's all going to be better. But it's not going to be better. 
And I think God in his grace is beginning to show us in no uncertain terms that the way you've gone about trying to fix things, it's not even close to right because you have fallen because you've left your first love. We just stamp Jesus on everything. We stamp Christian on everything to give it a, the right label. But the heart's not there. The substance is not there. And it's obvious it's not because you can see what's happening in our nation. Hatred and violence and intolerance. We tolerate evil, but we have no tolerance for righteousness. Will tolerate every kind of wickedness and sinfulness, and God's people are afraid to stand up and say, Excuse me, that's wrong. And we get shouted down and we run and hide and say, Well, I'll never say that again because that's just going to make me unpopular. Because we love the praise of men more than we love the praise of God. Second Chronicles chapter. 7 verse 14 if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land if my people we could say it like this if my church God addresses his people God commands His people. God promises His people that if we will do this, He will heal their land. Whether their land is called America, Uganda, the Philippines, Mexico, Russia, Iran, Iraq, Syria. It doesn't matter what land God's people lives in if his people will do what the scripture says. The promise of God is that he will heal their land. Well, what do we know about that? Well, some of you might get tossed into prison and some of you might even die. Well, how does that relate to healing our land? I promise you it does. It always has, it always will. So you and I don't get to choose how the healing is going to come. You and I are responsible to do what the scripture has commanded us to do. It shouldn't be our concern whether we ever will or whether we ever won't be persecuted in America. What should be our concern is what has happened to the church? What has happened to the name of God? What has happened to the witness of God in the land? What has happened to our salt? What has happened to the light? That should be our main concern. Not what's going to happen to me, but what is happening to the witness of God in our land. Because we love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And if we love God that way, then it's not going to be my concern first and foremost about what's going to happen to me or what's going to happen to my nation or what's going to happen to this or what's going to happen to that. It's what is happening to the witness of God. 
That's the problem. We don't have a heart for the glory of God. We don't have a heart to see the glory of God and the witness of God exalted in our land. We're more concerned about what our profession of faith or lack thereof, how it's going to impact me. I'll vote for wickedness if wickedness will promise to give me some money. I'll vote for wickedness if wickedness will pass this law and make sure that I'm taken care of. I'll vote for wickedness because so what does God do? God just makes it where it doesn't matter which way we go. <laughs> There's wickedness on every side. And I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe God is trying to get his people, his church to understand in the nations in this nation in particular, that until we remember from where we have fallen, until we repent and do the first things, until we return to our first love, until the name of God, the witness of God, the glory of God is first and foremost in our hearts, whatever the cost may be, These are, this is what we're going to continue to see. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse until we will be begging God. Right now, you know what churches do? Churches spend tens of thousands of dollars. We don't. But a lot of churches spend tens of thousands of dollars trying to find creative ways to attract people to their services. Then they spend tens of thousands of dollars to find creative ways to keep the people they've attracted into their service coming back. You know why churches have to spend so much money to do those things? Because they're trying to make people fall in love with someone that they don't naturally love. And what we need to do is get rid of all the gimmicks and we need to begin to point people back to the first things. That is the love of God. And when we love God properly, when God is in his proper place, then everything else will fall into its proper place. When we love God properly, then we will love our country properly. We will seek its peace and its welfare, its prosperity. We will work to make it better. We'll work and we'll seek and we'll pray that it become a haven for godliness and goodness for all. When we realize that we are first citizens of heaven, not citizens of the United States of America. I love America. But the Bible says I am a citizen of heaven. And what I should be most concerned about is the witness that I am and the church is giving to the Lord God Almighty. 
And when you begin to feel the same way, when you begin to desire the same thing, and the rest of the church does, then we're going to begin to see things change for good. When we hold God in our hearts in His proper place, first and preeminent above all, then everything else is going to fall into its proper place. This is the first and the greatest commandment, Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And if you do that, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And you will have fulfilled all the law and all the prophets. And we will not have to worry about whether God will be glorified or not. I want to invite you to come to the table now. Here's my charge to you, church. That you would go out and you would be salt and light. That you would, as citizens, as members of the holy nation who reside in this nation we call America, that you would go out and that you would, in that way that is most consistent, Model your love, honor, and glorify God. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences, even if your loving God should result in your persecution on this earth or your alienation from the people you want most to be popular with, But do not fear, for your loving God will most certainly result in God's glory and your reward in eternity. Your loving God may result in persecution here, but your loving God will certainly result in His glory and your reward. And as God's people, I charge you by the Word of God to humble yourself and to pray and to seek God's face and to turn from your wicked ways so that God will hear from heaven, forgive our sin and heal our land. This is the blessing that America most desperately needs and it is the blessing that can only come through his church. So church, go out and do what God has commanded you to do and be a blessing to this nation we call home. May the grace and the peace of the Lord go with you. Amen.